0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios.
1: This is Meet the Composer.
2: Do you ever find yourself scanning the dial on your car radio and stumbling upon some music you don't recognize? In my family, we'd play Guess the Composer, and we'd try to figure out who wrote the piece based on whatever little clues we could pick out. An arpeggiated bass line that pointed to Mozart, or some wacky stacked chords that could only be by a French composer, or big, wide intervallic leaps that screamed German music. When I first heard this music, a piece called Play by today's featured composer Andrew Norman, All of my usual associations pointed in different directions. On the one hand, there's some pretty Pierre Boulez-y complex orchestration. Piles of notes go into creating shapes in high definition, shapes meant to be viewed from a few steps back. On the other hand, what's this emerging tonal tug? You begin to realize there's some pretty old-school classical harmony in the mix. Andrew's music fits into a weird spot in new music in between the modernists and the neo romantics an irresistible combination of soft and hard sounds that engages so many parts of my brain at once. Today on our show, we'll follow Andrew Norman on his journey from the comfy identity of kid composer, writing emotional, filmic music for his middle school orchestra, through the too-familiar college freakout. This particular freakout starred modernism and atonality. Andrew nearly stopped writing altogether, nearly abandoned his whole childhood identity. He found his way out by flirting heavily with another career choice, architecture. From WQXR's Q2 Music, this is Meet the Composer, a deep dive into the minds of 21st century artists. I'm your host, Nadia Sirota. Today on our show, Andrew Norman.
1: I'm Andrew Norman, and I'm a composer.
2: (laughs) Mark Swed of the LA Times wrote, There is no end to the odd sounds Norman entices from a fairly conventional chamber ensemble. Strings buzzed like insects. Winds burst in with pinpoint dabs of color. A couple years ago, at 33... Andrew was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and now he's teaching at USC, his alma mater. So where did it all begin?
1: Back to the beginning. Yeah. I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Welcome to Grand Rapids, Michigan,
3: where old-fashioned family values never went out of style, and music
1: rings from every street corner. Then I moved to Rockford, Illinois, mm-hmm. another bucolic Midwestern town. Lived there until I was about nine. And I spent about eight or nine years in Modesto, California. Did the bulk of my growing up there and then uh, left for school. So,
2: So did you take
1: instrumental music lessons as a kid or did you sing in any choirs? I sang in church choir all throughout my childhood. And then I, at a certain point... I remember when I was quite young, my parents had like a little toy organ in the house, and it was like the only toy that I played with, so they kind of figured out that maybe I had an interest in music, then they they rented a piano, they got me some lessons. But it was very much my own thing. They weren't musical people, they were appreciative, but not super musical themselves. Consequently, I could fake practicing.
2: What would you do to fake practicing? Well,
1: I mean, I was always just sitting at the piano for hours a day, making up my own stuff, not uh, doing what I was supposed to be doing. So my piano career languished quite a bit.
2: So you used composition or improvisation as sort of a
1: procrastination technique? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And my parents didn't seem to know the difference. Maybe they did. Who knows? But uh, they let me do it. So the idea of... Making up my own stuff with an instrument seemed to be the most natural thing for me, as opposed to perfecting and practicing, like, you know, old music. And you said you sang in a church choir. What kind of church choir? My father's an evangelical minister, and so in every church where he was pastor, we always, my brother and I sang in the choir. When I got a little bit older, I also played a lot of church music on the piano and sort of that was my main musical outlet for a while within church i actually don 't know much
2: about the sort of uh, musical traditions of the evangelical church, so what what does that stuff sound like?
1: Well, I mean it varies greatly, and different churches are very different um, and some of them are very traditional, and that the the music resembles a lot of the Protestant tradition of you know like Lutheran hymns and stuff like that and then uh, Uh, Of course, then it runs the gamut all the way to the kind of worship band sort of thing, where it's like rock music every Sunday morning, and there was a little of that in my, um, in my youth as well. I, I, it's somewhat embarrassing, but uh, I mean, just from a a musical point of view, it's a little embarrassing. Um,
2: And did did you were you like a keyboard player in in an evangelical
1: rock band? Yeah, you could say that. I mean, it's so funny because there seems like there's so many uh, composers in our generation who have this sort of garage band experience in their past. And I I have the Evangelical Youth Band version of that, which I've never admitted to in public, but there it is. I love that. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, three-chord rock with kind of... I love you Jesus lyrics and um yeah it's fun.
2: You know that we're going to like email you until you send us recordings of your <laughs> evangelical rock band from your childhood.
1: Um uh yeah those recordings don't exist.
2: It,
1: so you say. Yeah, I mean I you know we can I I can laugh about it now and I, you know it seems unusual given the context of my music but you know there's actually I feel like it's a kind of experience that formed me in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to the idea of music as an emotional experience and that kind of very viscerally felt arc that a lot of rock music, and especially evangelical Christian rock music, you know, it wants to take you on a little journey. And that has, even now, is still very important to my to my work, I feel like. You're also um, a violist. So yes. when
2: did the string instrument things start happening in your
1: life? String instruments started in the fourth grade in school. My elementary school had a really awesome teacher, so I wanted to you know, jump on the bandwagon. So to speak. Yeah. <laughs> the orchestra wagon. There it is. Yeah, I think from the very beginning, I've always been a kind of, I'm not super strong on technique, but great on spirit in all of my instruments. And, and violin, I started on violin, switched to viola in high school because they needed them which was amazing. It was like the best decision of my life. But I've always been like a, an improviser and not really strong on the focused and practiced technique of whatever instrument I was playing.
2: How did you start writing to begin with?
1: I mean, so I was always making things up. So I wrote some piano pieces, and for me, because I was such an avid improviser, the trick was always notating what I had made because I could play it, but my notation skills were far behind what I could actually make up. Sure. That gradually improved, and I had a fantastic teacher in high school who really helped me with notation and the ideas of compositional craft. Actually, in junior high, I started writing for orchestra. I started writing for my little junior high orchestra. It seemed really natural to me. I mean, these were all my friends, and like, I don't know, I just sort of dove in and I wrote a string orchestra piece, and then I wrote an orchestra piece. And then, you know, as a kid in small-town California, you get noticed pretty fast when you're writing orchestra music and you're 14. So that, in a way, that became, like, kind of part of my identity in a way that I've also had to deal with some as an adult, like, um... Kid composer? Kid composerness. Right. Yeah, special kid composer known for doing something.
2: Articles mentioning Mozart.
1: Yes, right. a lot of positive reinforcement at a young age. And then even from the beginning, like my music had a kind of natural theatricality to it and a natural sense of drama and often sounded like film music, as was mentioned to me quite often as a child, which is fine. And, and that's also something that I've dealt with. We haven't talked about this yet, but I also desperately wanted to be an architect as a kid, and in fact thought I was going to go to architecture school until I woke up one day and I was in music school, and I was like, how did this happen? How did this happen? I don't know. I had this very inspiring music teacher in the last few years of high school. I think she really sort of showed me that it was possible to be a musician, and then I just sort of... Yeah, yeah, I'll be a musician. So Andrew went off to college... And I was both a piano performance person and a composer. And then, as many people do in college... I had kind of a freak out about a whole lot of things, and one of them was writing music, and I just quit for a while, and I didn't know what I was doing, and all of a sudden I was like, wait, I'm 20, I should have been in architecture school this whole time, like, I'm a miserable composer, This everything is wrong. So so, one day, Andrew found himself in the architecture library. At USC, where I was doing my undergrad, and realized that I had this very personal connection with a lot of buildings and a lot of... I just remembered, like, this whole passion from my youth came back. But then I also realized that there were similar things that I had been trying to do in my music and that I could sort of use architecture as a metaphor for the things that I wanted to try in composition. And in a way, I started writing music about buildings. So your breakthrough moment in
2: composition was flirting with architecture.
1: (laughs) Yeah, engaging with architecture. And I can find inspiration there. And I started writing music again. You know, I was also struggling a little bit with modernism.
2: What do you mean by modernism? Oh,
1: dude. (laughs) I didn't mean to say dude. Oh, dear. Um, Modernism. Well, I mean... You know, my my education as a young composer up through high school didn't have much to do with music that had happened in the mid and late twentieth century. And uh, you know, when I got to school, I was, of course, all sorts of music was thrown at me, and I was that was also kind of freaky
2: music like this piece, Les Pons, by one of the sort of scariest names in twentieth century music, Pierre yeah. Boulez. Boulez writes super awesome music, but not without a kind of chip on his shoulder. He famously said in 1971, it is not enough to deface the Mona Lisa because that does not kill the Mona Lisa. All art of the past must be destroyed. Imagine how this idea impacted a kid who had spent his entire life studying the art of the past and crafting work based on those ideas.
1: Would love to be a composer who is like excited by all that stuff initially, but that's just not the truth. I was freaked out. I think it also has to do with in part because I had a pretty formed identity at that point as a composer. Like this idea that I've been a composer since I was ten, and like people really loved what I did. And then there's all this, there's all these other ideas of what it means to be a composer that like people in the 20th century explored. And I was like, ah. Looking back, I wish I had been just like, chill out, Andrew, just experiment and do whatever you want. But I wasn't. I was kind of freaked out by everything. And So anyway, the idea of thinking about modernist architecture really helps me get my brain around modernist music. And by that, I mean kind of like mid-century Modernist music.
2: Um, so I think probably some of our listeners are thinking about, like, Danish furniture
1: right now. So oh, as am I. I, I <laughs> always think about Danish furniture. I mean, come on.
2: <laughs> um, but mid-century modern music sounds not a lot like, in my mind, what Danish furniture
1: would sound I know, like. I know. Often, I often think that, like, why couldn't they just sound like beautiful Danish furniture? Modernist music is not like that. Such as? Such as, like, Boulez... Milton Babbitt, Stockhausen. This is music that tends to be very, very dense, very, on the surface, very jagged and angsty. You might you might say it's a little angsty. But also, maybe angst is the wrong word. I mean, it can also be very, very detached, very structurally minded, but very inscrutable, in a way, on the surface. And presents a lot of very different ideas about what music can be from the sort of expressive, big, romantic paradigm of my youth, you know. I was also, as a pianist, I was very much about playing Rachmaninoff and Brahms, and and that, to me, that kind of expression was what I understood music to be. So encountering something that was entirely different from that was a little shocking. And I would say, you know... One of the interesting things about my development is that like that sense of conflict between sort of aesthetic paradigms it often stops me dead in my tracks. It it's been something that I fixate on a little bit. It is is often a source of a lot of the tension in my works. Like I took this whole conflict like very very seriously in a way that I almost sometimes I look around at other young composers and I'm amazed because it seems like they're all just kind of happy with everything. And I was like, wait, didn't you struggle for a decade with this like I just did? Like, isn't this like a huge deal for you? There's like modernist people who have these very strong ideas. And then there are like postmodernist people or neo-romantic people or whatever people. And they all have very strong ideas. And how do you keep them all in your head? And for me, it's there's that tension there between all those ideas. It has one of two effects on my music. One is to completely just shut me down or it leads to some strange, perhaps freakish union of kind of the modernist Andrew with the kind of hyper-expressive Andrew. So, yeah, I never quite know where that's going to land, and but I'm getting better about just kind of accepting the fact that I'm genuinely attracted to a lot of different things aesthetically, and even though if you sort of look at them dogmatically, they don't have anything to do with each other, They you can find some weird ways to get them to intersect in a piece of music and that's interesting. So what
2: what what are these pieces about buildings that you started writing? Oh.
1: I got to spend a year in Rome about 6 years ago at the American Academy and I made it my goal to visit every church in the city and I failed miserably because there's like 7000. But over the course of the year certain churches became sort of significant and important to me. So the Companion Guide to Rome is this massive string trio, and it's in nine movements. Each movement is a little character piece inspired by a particular church in Rome. There's like one big
2: sort of central movement. Can you maybe explain a little bit about what that, what that movement's doing and what it's inspired by?
1: Yeah, the very last movement of the piece is a third of the piece. It's ten minutes long. It is like the big work, and it's preceded by eight little small things. And that movement is called Sabina. It's named after the Church of Santa Sabina, and it has the most amazing translucent stone windows. It's a very plain church. In Rome, it's unusual because most of them have just been built on and built on and built on. Yeah, they're a little bit like your grandma's house. You know, things just accumulate on them. But this one is very, very plain, except for these windows, which are more than a 1,000 years old, and they're made of translucent stone. And one day, I got it in my head to go there before sunrise and sort of watch what happens with these windows in how the light comes in and, and through these kind of golden patterns which are constantly changing and, you know, a cloud passes in front of the sun and they disappear. It was really amazing for me and so I, I you know, I wanted to write a piece about it and deal with the idea of morphing patterns and for me it's all about the open strings and these kind of getting a sense of resonance out of three small string instruments, you know, um, making them sound much larger. There's a moment where it clearly veers into fantasy land. (laughs) Like it starts and yeah, it's about light and stone and whatever. And then all of a sudden it like opens up into some huge, sometimes like, where did that come from? I have no idea, but it definitely, it's like taking this idea and just making something gigantic out of it.
2: In this piece, the player's bows almost never stop moving. The texture is intense, almost frenetic. But because of the way string instruments are tuned, the harmonic and melodic material moves at a totally different pace. The music unfolds gradually, almost inevitably, towards a string of ecstatic climaxes. The last movement of Andrew's piece, A Companion Guide to Rome, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2012, and which you can listen to more of on our website, ketomusic.org slash meet the composer. When we come back, Andrew and I talked notation, expression, and weird ways to play instruments. Stay tuned. Q2 Music's first podcast, Meet the Composer, is finally here. Subscribers to the MTC podcast get not only immersive, plush interviews with some of the most innovative, brilliant, and weird composers out there, they get exclusive recordings of music performed by some of today's hottest ensembles. On August 12th, podcast subscribers can download an exclusive track by Andrew Norman as part of our bonus track series. It's all available at q2music.org and on iTunes. I'm Nadia Sirota, and from WQXR's Q2 Music, this is Meet the Composer. Today, we've been mining the brain of Andrew Norman. In 2013, Andrew wrote a piece for my Sextet Y Music called Music in Circles. Why music's instrumentation poses some pretty specific problems to composers. We have a string trio plus flute, clarinet, and trumpet. And for one thing, that's a whole bunch of treble instruments and not a ton of bass. And number two, mixing winds and brass, who in an orchestra can make their solo lines sound clearly heard above 30 or so string players with three people on the string team, can pose some interesting challenges to composers, to say the least. Andrew's solution to these particular challenges was pretty unique. He actually ended up employing a lot of extended techniques, weird ways to play our instruments, and the result was a sound that was so different. We actually had a bunch of rehearsals dedicated to figuring out how to get the trumpet to poke out of the ensemble texture. Here's Y Music flute player Alex Sop. I play flute
3: with a bunch of groups, including Y Music and with the Knights. It's like super athletic to play his music, and I, I can't I can't tell you how it like it really takes every bit of life that you have to give into it it really takes out of you and i mean for me especially music in circles is like the equivalent to going for a really long run or like doing something really strenuous he was always encouraged to go faster and faster and i think because he really did want that breathless ecstatic run to the finish like he never wanted it to sound too in control It's like all the different sounds and the amount of air that goes into all of these sounds. And then just the way that the phrases kind of like tumble on top of themselves over and over again. Like it can leave you a little lightheaded, but I think that lightheadedness is what makes it beautiful.
2: So as you may gather, these techniques, these sounds that Andrew is asking for, some of them are pretty standard at this point. Techniques like sol ponticello where a string player can draw the bow close to the bridge to produce a wheezy, ghostly sound, or blowing air through the wind instruments to produce the faintest hint of pitch. Others, though, they are straight from the crate, creative Andrew stuff.
1: A lot of my work is all about very clearly and concisely explaining very complicated physical combinations of motions,
2: so your scores must look a little bit different than your typical sort of, you know, Bach partita.
1: Yes, they do. I would love to be able to write a score that looks like a Bach partita. Som- someday I will. And by that I mean a score that is so crystal clear that... In a way, lots of notes aren't needed about it. Notes mean, like, written instructions, you know? I think that's the beauty of Bach, is that, like, he leaves so much open-ended that, that we can do whatever we want with it. There's so many possible layers. But for me, in my work right now, so much of what makes my music my music goes beyond traditional notation and sort of pushes at the boundaries of what our notation system can do. By the way, I I love notation. I love our system. I think it's like the most special thing about being a composer is that we work with this notation system that has come down to us after like a thousand years of evolution and that we're adding to it constantly. It's just its just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, you know, there's so I'm Sorry if I'm getting on a little soapbox here, but there's so many kinds of music that don't involve notation that are spectacular and interesting and beautiful, but our little world involves notation, and I think that's so, so, so special that when you, Nadia, play a piece by me, Andrew, like, it's not just me telling you what to do. Like, I write it down, and you make something of it. That's amazing to me.
2: Anyway, okay, back. I'm back. Um, I love it though. I think we should always have a notation soapbox moment. Of-
1: <laughs> no, everyone, yeah. I mean, come on, people. Notation, it's amazing. Um, what was I saying? I was saying something we, about. We were talking about how actually you are pushing notation and, and the, the things that you're asking oh, yeah. for. Yeah, like, so our, our system of notation, as it has come down to us, is very, very good with pitch like when you want a certain pitch you just write it and everyone knows what you mean it's pretty good with loudness and softness actually not so good it's really good with rhythm if you're writing rhythm in a certain kind of way you can be very very clear where it really falls apart is when we're talking about timbre timbre is a fancy word that just means the i would say the color of the sound it's what makes a trumpet sound like a trumpet and a viola sound like a viola but other timbral
2: ideas, aside from just force, are really, really not available to us just in terms of the system of notation that you're talking
1: about. Yeah, no. And and the system is just very vague. Like, there's no clear way. And we have this system of words that we use sometimes. Right, and,
2: but also in, like, you know, eight different languages, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. It's come down to us in this weird combination of different languages and all these terms that mean slightly different things to different people. And gradually, you know, it's kind of like... It's kind of like the history of science or whatever and every once in a while they have a big conference and they decide something. I mean, notations like that too. Every once in a while something finally makes its way into like the standard lexicon, but I still feel like we are we're kind of all mishmashing around when it comes to timbre and stuff like that and how we really are going to describe these things that instruments do.
2: I actually have a viola here weirdly.
1: Oh. Um, let's do a demo. Let's
2: do a demo, right?
1: <laughs> Great. Cool. So oftentimes, extended techniques are used to create different and unusual timbres on an instrument. So for instance, I can make your viola sound not like a viola, but like a, a whispering breeze or something like that. Or
2: So my normal, my normal technique of playing
1: a G would sound something like this. Yes. Okay. Now we can change the timbre if you move towards the bridge. Yeah, we get that sound. And if you play directly on the bridge... Yeah, you get this amazing air sound. So that's changing the timbre of that viola through a very specific extended technique. Like the the, the slow-motion bow? You want to try some slow-motion yeah, bow? Yeah. Well, first of all, one of the keys is to do light left-hand finger pressure. So pick a note, maybe... Instead
2: of playing a G-sharp like yeah. this, I'm going to use a light pressure so uh-huh. it doesn't really
1: yeah, so it's have kinda, a lot of pitch. It's a little fuzzy sounding. And then I just want you to... Imagine yourself, you're in a movie that's gone into slow motion and you're really just... Yeah, and you can lighten the pressure. (sighs) And you can heavy, you can add pressure. You can go closer to the bridge even sometimes and get... Yeah, no, this other thing that I did with that slow motion... If you were to finger, just like finger a G, but finger it kind of halfway, so it's not fully depressed, and then use some of that slow motion bow, and you can, if you, you massage the pressure in your bow arm and the pressure in your finger in your left hand, you can get a note that sounds like that G, but has a little dirt in it. Yeah. And you see how it's kind of, like, coming in and out? Who knows what that sounds like, you, by yourself, in front of a microphone, but when you get a whole string section doing that... It sounds like... What it sounded like was actually, like, an old-timey recording where everyone, you know, everything is fuzzy and covered in this layer of of sonic dirt. Right. And it was really... I thought it was it was really cool. So either I invent my own symbols for these things, these very specific sort of physical combinations of m- motions that are going to lead to a very specific timbre. So I could invent a symbol or a brief word description of them, which then, like, it borders on linguistics in a way because it's like inventing a language. And however you define your symbols in your language, it actually defines what you can do with it musically, and so, finding a symbol or a label that's going to work with all the different ways I want to use it musically is actually sometimes that's the primary sort of challenge of my work.
2: The piece that you wrote for Why
1: Music, Music in Circles,
2: had a had a stroke that I've actually really never seen demanded, which was this stroke where instead of um, moving the bow back and forth mm-hmm. in a in a bounce, like you asked for me to move it completely up and down, which makes this really interesting sound. What I do like about your music is that that seems like such an obvious move now that I've done it. Yeah. Um, But before you asked for it, I really, it hadn't occurred to me.
1: Uh, Great. (laughs) You know, I think that move is purely just me goofing off at home and being like, well, what happens if I don't move it up and down? What if it's just bouncing on the string? And not only just use that sound, but then to see where that sound could go, like what could how that sound could develop is that's that's the interesting thing for me right so and then you know how to describe to you, you and all all the other violists of the world like how to make that sound that's the trick
2: definitely hear some resonance between the Y Music piece and Sabina from the Companion Guide to Rome. Are those pieces related in your brain at all?
1: Oh, very much. Yeah, they're, they're in the same key, in fact. And they both deal with the kind of like organic growth and how to take something very, very small and spin it into something that is surprisingly large. That piece also deals with the string instruments in a very similar way about getting those open strings to ring. I kind of have two different ways of working, and one is like the kind of jump cut, Andrew, I would say, where it's about, you know, smashing disparate ideas right up next to each other, having them interact or, like, interrupt each other. Oh, Thomas! (laughs) And have this very Tom and Jerry sense of how, you know, or video Mm game-like sense of how ideas... which can be really fun and then there's the other style which is like it's often really amazing just to watch one thing unfold as if you know in a movie when they just they give you a single take and you have to start crying and that's really amazing and so both the Y music piece and Sabina are that that kind of one take let's watch something unfold in real time so what are, what are some other techniques that you have been asking for lately? Well, I mean, there's all sorts of, like, abrasive scratch tone, which I really love. I don't know. Would you mind handing me a viola? No, go for viola? it. Your viola? Oh, this is so exciting. These kind of... <coughs> ...sounds that are... To me, they sound a little bit like... um, It's like an electronic sound. It's like, um, you know, when the needle has been ripped off the thing a little bit. Or this one. This one. I love this.
2: What I loved about that uh, first electronic sound that you made just because it, what what it looks like is kind of interesting. Your left hand darts really quickly up and down the fingerboard yeah. um, while you're producing that sound. And your, your right hand is also kind of very, very light and fast. And it, it feels like a cat pouncing on
1: something. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because for me, instrumental music is all about the combination of physical gesture and sonic event. You know, they're related. Like, there's a very strong physical gesture and it makes a very interesting musical sound. And, you know, for me, they're almost, they're inseparable in a way. And I often think about these gestures in terms of the physical impacts they're going to have, the visual impact. Like, what does it look like for a human being to make this sound in this strange way? And yeah, my, my last big orchestra piece was like, how can I manipulate the idea of, you know, 60 people doing that gesture? And it jumps out because it's like 60 people doing this weird physical thing you've never seen an orchestra do in addition to like making a really odd sound. Ooh, I have one more I'm going to show you. Um, I've also been playing around with the pitchless bounce. So the one. But if you just lighten your fingers. I love that sound. And I wrote this whole, you know that sound? That's me just sliding my fingers on the fingerboard. I don't know if anyone can hear that or not. It sounds a little bit like, you know, on guitar. Right. That, yeah. The, the guitar shifty sound. Mm-hmm. I wrote like this whole fugue for orchestra, for strings, which was just this sound. So by fugue, you mean do you mean
2: like sort of old school fugue, imitative writing, where there's one voice and then another voice comes in a little bit later with the same material yeah, and interacts yeah. with itself?
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I. Yeah. And yes, as you say, a fugue is a very old-timey thing, but, like, you just put a new sound to it, and then it's, like, in a whole new world. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to suggest that my music is a whole new world. Well, I mean, kind of is. (laughs) It was a combination of pitchless thud and shifting sound. It was awesome. I try to be as open as possible and to have a combination of you know these like wacky weird techniques and I also love traditional playing like there's nothing like the sound of a viola section in thirds ugh kills me so like yeah no let's do it all
2: As always, if you want to hear any more of anything you've heard on today's show, you can visit our website, q2music.org slash meet the composer. When we come back from the break, Andrew and I will talk about his most ambitious project yet and what video games and Beethoven have in common. Stay tuned.
1: You don't have to be near a computer to listen to Q2 music. The WQXR app makes it mobile. Listen to the best in new music wherever you want, whenever you want. Download the WQXR app for free to stream Q2 music on your phone or tablet.
0: It's a roller coaster.
3: It's fresh.
0: It's luminous.
3: It's breathless. It's... It's... It's funny. It's funny. Exhilarating. It's a
0: jack-in-the-box.
3: It's imaginative. It's expansive. Colorful. It's...
0: It's... it's, it's frightening. It's a little scary. It's
3: energetic. It's frenetic. It's punching. It's rhythmic. It's risky. It's... It's winded. <laughs> it's joyful. It's... It's Andrew... The first time that I heard Andrew Norman's music...
0: I'm actually doing paperwork. I'm in Zankal Hall.
3: I was actually playing Andrew Norman's music.
0: The group is getting ready to play. It's my office stereo. And, and the piano makes this little tiny phrase. That breathless quality. And just as the piano is about to finish its phrase... The whole rest of the ensemble comes crashing in
3: It never just sits there on the page, it never just floats in the room
0: Which sounds almost like a trip to a very, very good amusement park It's
3: really driving and full of energy
0: As though some SWAT team has just come into the moment of silence where you're contemplating some poetic image
3: It grabs you by the collar immediately and says, hey, listen
0: And then all of a sudden it sort of splinters and you're constantly, wait, what, what is that?
3: But within this kind of great expansiveness.
0: After a while, I'm drawn away from my paperwork. It
3: struck me immediately as a voice
0: that is unique. Original. The sophistication and the humor and the timing. This great sense of unfolding. I'm not able to concentrate on what I was doing, and I'm actually concentrating on what I'm listening to. It's
3: changing constantly and holding your attention. To me, that's the sign of really fantastic art. And some of the
0: sounds are simple enough that you can grasp what they are.
4: Every piece is a unique sound world, completely unique.
0: And some of them you're thinking, whoa, who put this slippery stuff on the floor as you're sliding all around with the strings and their glissandos. And so there's this amazing sense of trying to figure out where your bearings are, and yet at no point do you ever feel threatened or that it isn't worth it. I'm David Robertson, music director of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra.
3: I'm Alex Sop, and I play the flute with Y Music and with The Night.
0: I'm Gil Rose, artistic director and founder of the Boston Modern Orchestra Project.
3: Hi, I'm Jennifer Higdon.
2: I'm a composer. I'm Nadia Sirota. Today we've been mining the brain of Andrew Norman. As we've said a few times on the show today, Andrew has always been attracted to massive ensembles. He's been writing orchestra music since he was 14. That having been said, last year, Andrew wrote an orchestra piece that was his biggest yet. In a commission for Gilrose and the Boston Modern Orchestra Project, Andrew wrote a 45-minute symphonic piece that represents something akin to a symphony number one.
1: The piece is called Playing? Playing? It is really big, and they gave me sort of free reign to do what I wanted. And I was like, all right, I'm going to write an expansive symphonic piece. It's in three big parts. About a week ago, maybe 10 days ago, I had the idea to call them Level 1, Level 2, and Level 3. Is this
2: sort of like a video game? There's
1: definitely a video game reference here.
2: You've written a piece about a video game before. Yeah,
1: no, it's a recurring motive in my output. I'm not a gamer myself, but I really love watching. And I think there's something very interesting about the way a narrative is processed in a video game and the way one works through time in a video game.
5: Ooh.
1: The idea of trying things again and again, this is very natural to how video games work. You try it, you fail. You try, you choose a door, you go down there, it didn't work, you go back, you choose another door. I think of it in a very formal sense. I actually think there's something about symphonic form. That is very similar to this idea of, like, the do-over button and the, like, trying things multiple ways. So, like, in a Beethoven symphony, they present some ideas, they mix them all up, right? And then they go back and they try them all again and they get them right. Right. So what was gotten wrong at the beginning that created this sort of dissonance, we would say, they go back and they put everything in the right arrangement, which to me is a very video game-like idea of, like... We're working our way through this thing. Some things, you know, some things go right, some things go wrong. And then finally we kind of figure everything out. What had been kind of a mess, we figure out and we do it right. I could go on and on and on about this, but for me... What's so amazing about the symphonic tradition, not necessarily all the colors and the amazing sounds that an orchestra can make, it's the amazing formal sense you can get from an extended piece of music with no words in it. And the idea, like, what's so amazing to me is when you're listening to a symphony and you have this realization, like, oh, I've heard this, but now it's different. Or I'm different because of, like, the three minutes of music that happened in between. Like, I'm in a different place, and, like, that, that sense of... of like a formal click going on in your head, like, oh, yeah, that was what happened before.
2: And you get the payoff of like a finale that feels
1: great. Yeah! yeah.
2: You don't have a lot of time on your own in listening to a symphony to sort of play with these ideas. They have to be presented to you in a way where you are going to contextualize them yeah. differently.
1: How did you use this in play? Well, there's a lot of techniques, but one of them is that like the piece presents you with a gazillion different ideas at the beginning. <laughs> And gradually, over the course of the piece, some of these ideas become important as they come back. They start transforming, and some of them don't. Some of them are kind of like wrong doors. The piece very much, I would say, jumps around in its own narrative, something that's very common not only to video games, but also a lot of cinema and TV these days of narratives that loop back on themselves, that aren't linear. There's this climax that happens over and over and over in the piece play, and every time it gets to this critical juncture, it comes up with a different answer. But those are all wrong, and finally at one point towards the end of the piece, it comes up with the climax that is the right answer, or the answer that leads it forward. This is a very Beethoven idea, actually. I'm, there's nothing new about it. So the percussionists in this piece are not just banging around on things, but, well they are banging around on things, but uh, those things actually perform operations on the rest of the orchestra. They're like triggers or like buttons on a control for video games. So like there's a pause button. Every time one of the percussionists hits a particular instrument, the orchestra pauses and then there's like a fast forward button. all sorts of different buttons that I decided in advance that these things were going to have these different operations. And so, who knows if anyone can hear this or not, but, like, that's one of the ways that I actually wrote the piece, is like, well, what's happening? What would it sound like if I randomly paused it? (laughs) At any given moment. And I try it a few times, you know? Or, like, what if I just randomly sped it up and fast-forward? And the piece, I mean, there's so many different definitions for the word play. Play can be a very happy collaborative creative word it can also be slightly dark like this idea of of manipulation or control say you got played which i think about like you know a conductor waving his arms and the orchestra plays is very much like a chain of control like they're doing something and people are they're being played These percussionists are kind of, in a way, playing the rest of the orchestra. Kind of like a puppet and master kind of... Anyways, there's like this playful aspect of play, this sadistic, sinister aspect of it. Also, it's like a play. Right, sure. I love thinking about an orchestra not just in terms of its sonic potential, but in terms of its human potential. These are human beings making sound... It goes to the ideas we were discussing earlier about the physicality of making sounds and how this can be really dramatic and powerful, like people making sound. And I did think of the orchestra in terms of various protagonists that are interacting with each other on a very um, interpersonal level.
4: Hi, I'm Porter Anderson from Tampa, Florida. Links to all the music featured on today's show, along with Andrew Norman's website, are available at q2music.org slash composer Meet the Composer was produced by Nadia Sirota and Alexander Overington. Bea Chaloner was the assisting producer, and the executive producer was Alex Ambrose. Thanks to Hannes Brown and Elena Saavedra Buckley. Very special thanks to Gil Rose and BMOP, Jennifer Higdon... David Robertson and Alex Sopp and to the LA Philharmonic for use of their live recording of Try. And a very special thanks as well to our Kickstarter supporters including Eric Somers, Cecil Wasserman Richard Perry, Bill Bragan Mickey Sirota and Greg Brown. Thanks to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. I'm Porter Anderson.
2: You're listening to New York's Q2 Music, part of Classical 105.9 WQXR. Q2 Music is a listener-supported online station devoted to music of living composers. Q2 is home for immersive festivals, live webcasts, and on-demand concerts from today's leading music performers. Find us at Q2 on Facebook, Q2 Music on Twitter, and online at q2music.org.